Okay, I am very excited to talk and dialogue about this theme. And here, here's, the, here's what I want to go after. Christ plus nothing. God without religion. Christ plus nothing. God without religion. And the goal here is to so thoroughly understand and apply the gospel of grace, who is Jesus, that we allow the revelation of this to hit our spirit to such a degree that we are detoxed from mixture, mixing works with grace. Now this impure mixture is, is what's hamstringing the church right now. And so there's a, a tremendous unveiling today in the church. It's being called the modern grace movement. Um, and the church is rediscovering the gospel of grace. This is put in, in the book of Acts. And we're going to probably spend the rest of our lives plundering the depths of this understanding because we've all been uh, deceived, really, with hamburger helper when it comes to this. There's gonna, we're going to discover over the next weeks and months there's a very big difference between the Christian religion as it's been presented to us and the gospel that's in the Bible. And so what we want to discover is the pure, unfiltered gospel of grace. Now, um, a lot's being written about this. I sent you an email with a number of resources. One of them is a book by Watchman E called The Normal Christian Life. And in this book, he, he, he describes the gospel out of, of the book of Galatians and the, and the book of Romans that we're going to look at in just a minute. And he, he, he says it, he describes it so well that when you're done, you understand that Everything about the Christian life is all about Jesus doing His work inside of us. Alright? And so, Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, he goes, I have been crucified with Christ. Alright? I was placed in Christ. Christ was placed in me. I was crucified with Christ. My false self died with Christ. My Adamic first nature died with Christ. Okay, my, my false self was buried with Christ. That's why we do baptism as a symbol of that burial. My, my new self was resurrected with Christ. I've been ascended with Christ and now I, I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. So therefore, God looks at me as righteous. I am as righteous to God as Jesus. Now that, that's a staggering piece of information. God looks at you right now as perfect before Him. You are the righteousness of Christ. And you appropriate this by faith, not by works. That is the gospel right there. Christ in you, Colossians 1, 
is your hope of glory. It's not Christ plus your effort. It's not Christ plus you doing all these things. It's Christ and Christ alone who is the source of our life. Now this is staggering and amazing. Now, the big debate in the church is, is over this, this understanding of grace. And I'm commending to you that you read Joseph Prince's book, Reigning in Life. And it's extraordinarily clear, powerful message of the gospel of grace that is being reintroduced to the church. Unfortunately, there's a, ba a backlash by teachers that say, if you get too into grace, people will get licentious, they'll get lazy, they'll use it as an excuse to sin. And the, the grace message is being misrepresented by these, by these mixed grace teachers. Now here's where the problem, here's where the enemy kind of hijacked this movement back to grace. There were a couple of people, one of them, his name is Rob Bell, who under the guise of grace, the umbrella of that grace, said, this is so good, it must mean that everybody's saved, no matter what they do with Jesus. And it became super popular with people like Oprah, who brought him on their TV station, and he, he became this populist teacher who you know, who basically said, God's so loving, he would, he would never allow anybody to go to hell. So it was a false teaching that was done under the banner of grace. And it set off an alarm to all of these scholars that, want, you know, that, that, that now they got to warn the church. Unfortunately, though, anybody that's preaching on grace has then been put under that banner of false grace or cheap grace or dysfunction. So anybody that's trying to teach on this has been, has been compartmentalized over there as a hyper-grace people. And that is super not true. High-level scholars, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and, and, and uh, who wrote the whole commentary in the book of Romans, huge numbers of scholars that are highly tuned into the Bible, what the Bible teaches and uh, Paul's teachings, are into grace and that we're saved by grace through faith. And not only are we saved by grace, but we're, we are sanctified by grace. We don't have grace at the first part of the deal and that's bait and switch and now you've got to work and save yourself. So there's been a lot of confusion in the church over this topic. And I can assure you, again, that this message of grace will not be used as a license of sin or that will slip off the deep end of some false doctrine. That's not going to happen. I can assure you of that 100%. Nor are any of the teachers that I'm going to point you to or any of the books I'm going to encourage you to read do that as well. They will say, however, that you can't be holy without the grace of God. Striving, rule-keeping, Self, you know, that's as a form of self-righteousness that never, ever works. So they would say it's just the opposite. If you dummy down the message of grace, you're ripping people off from the power of God to work in their life. Grace does not equal a license to sin. Grace is the only way you can't, you, you know, you don't want to sin. 
All right, so the, the critics of this hypergrace movement, and by the way, the word hypergrace has been used negatively or it's been used positively. And I'm going to give you the negative one first, and then I'm going to give you the positive one, just to frame where we're going as a people so that those listening to what I'm saying are reassured that we're going in the right direction as a people. All right? Um, a person that is sending a warning out there about, quote, hypergrace is a guy named Dr. Michael Brown. I know him personally. He's been a friend. And he wrote a book warning the church about this hypergrace teaching. And in Michael Brown's opinion, hypergrace is grace plus error. That it pulls out the need to, to press into God, to, you know, to contend for His presence, to repent and to feel bad. And, and Michael Brown has written a book confronting some of the notions of grace. A counter book to that, to Mike's book, is this book called The Hyper Grace Gospel by Paul Ellis. And Paul Ellis does a masterful job, one, um, affirming where Michael Brown's correct, and then taking him on where he's not correct. And in my opinion, um, without a doubt, Paul Ellis nails it in terms of the exacting answers back to Michael Brown's concerns. Now, Michael Brown did a really bad thing. He, without interviewing, without discussing, without even studying up on what Joseph Prince has written, Michael Brown threw Joseph Prince in that category of false teachers and in his book falsely accused Joseph of a whole bunch of things that he's never said or done, ever. Later, he came out in public in Charisma Magazine and, and repented for having done that and admitting that he made a mistake and showing that what Joseph t Prince teaches is actually correct. And, and he apologized for that irresponsible thing that he did. Um, I was super disappointed in Mike Brown for having done that. And I'm very, very concerned by the book Mike wrote. Now and then he breaks into explosive and ecstatic praises of God's grace. And then later he has a yeah but to it. And the yeah buts cause people to drive with the brakes on. And they don't fully appropriate what God's trying to do. And I, I don't like that. Okay, in other words, he's nervous that if we don't get this right, people will just fall into you know, indifference and they'll just cruise, you know, saying, well, it's all grace. And that, exactly, that exact thing is what doesn't happen. And furthermore, that's what Paul was accused of. So actually, if you don't preach grace so radically that people accuse you of, of making it too easy then you're probably not preaching the right gospel. You tracking with me? Mm -hmm. Alright, so Mike, Michael Brown does not like the term hypergrace um, or, or has used the term hypergrace as a way of stating that it's cheap grace or it's false grace. And he would say basically it's, it's, um, it's Christianity light. Like if you start buying into the gospel of grace as this being described, you're going to be a, 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 low, a low level and, you know, it's Christianity delight. You won't press into God. You won't be intense. You won't be the radically committed people that you're supposed to be. You'll go limp. So that's what he calls it, Christianity light. 
The other thing that they've done is they've said, yeah, grace is good, but we also need truth. And it's put truth up against grace. Like those that are under grace, they have this way of, you know, like being light on truth. But here's the thing. In other words, if we tell people the truth about their sin, if we tell people the truth about how they stink and how they got to get their act together, that's will inspire them to get their, to, you know, to improve their life. That's what they're saying. But listen to this. It says in John 1.16, from him, from for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace and grace, and Jesus is grace and truth. So grace and truth aren't mutually exclusive. They're one and the same on this side of the cross. So here's the perception that we need, we need to still hold on to the Old Testament ministry of condemnation. And we need to put the law up in front of people and say the law is perfect and good and if you're not meeting up to the law, you're stinking and you need to go and repent and weep and moan and groan and you need to try a little better. Yes, you were saved by grace, you're going to heaven, but now you've got to know how you stink because, and you've got to know how you're not keeping the law because you're going to drift and you're going to lose your focus and the fear of the Lord isn't going to be upon you. And you're going to fall short of the glory of God because you're going to rationalize your wrong behavior. So you need the truth because the truth will tell you how you stinketh. And the truth, once you feel bad enough about how you're not doing the truth, you will then be inspired to, to go out there and do what it takes to get well again. That, that's really the approach. And it's honestly an Old Testament approach it's called the ministry of condemnation. Okay, we now on the New, New Testament have what called a ministry of righteousness. Our job is to keep reminding people that the only way they can get better is through Jesus Christ Himself, not by works. In other words, Jesus is grace. And that we keep reminding people, you are now the righteousness of Christ. You live from victory. Your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And by looking at Christ, not yourself, you will be liberated. By, by having the gazing on Christ and the finished work of the cross, by communing with Jesus, you will absorb His attributes. And the next thing you know, the supernatural interior reality of Christ will displace your darkness. So rather than making your sin and yourself the focus, you gaze on Jesus Christ and make Him the focus and you become what you look at. So from a pastoral strategy, emphasizing grace is far more effective than emphasizing sin. Are you tracking with me? So, um, now here's a verse out of Romans 5.20. You guys can look this up. I'm going to have a couple of you uh, read it for me. Romans 5.20. you could. Somebody read it out really loud. Romans 5.20. Janet? I don't have my Okay. The law was brought in so that trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Okay, so the law was brought in 
which is perfect and pure, the law was brought to us to show us God's holy standard. But when the law came and came at you, what did your false self want to do when you heard the law? You want you wanted to, you wanted to do the exact opposite. You you had the your, you wanted to rebel. You trespass, or you tried to keep it and failed and entered into condemnation. Or if you thought you kept it when you really didn't, then you got self righteous, or arrogant, or un, you know. So the law's job was to expose your need for Jesus. The law has no power to make you right with God or in reality. Does everyone understand that? The law is a taskmaster. It drives us to our need for Jesus. Now, here's the, here's the way it's put. Where sin increased um, and abounded, grace, which is God's unmerited favor and power to do His will, grace has surpassed the law. And it increased the more and, and superabounded grace, it says superabounded. So let me read this text. The word Paul uses for describing grace is superabounding. That's what it means in the Greek. It is made up of two Greek words. Huper, H-U-P-E-R, from which we get the English prefix hyper, meaning over, above, beyond, ma magnificent. And it, the other word is parisio, which means superabundant in quantity or superior in quality. So it's a combination of those two words. So to say that God's grace is superabundant only takes you halfway to Paul's meaning. It's more than that, says the Apostle of Grace. It's over, beyond, and above superabundant. It's superabundant. It's super, superabundant. It's hyper, hyper grace. That's not me putting a spin on Paul's words. That's what he actually says in the Greek. Some might say, don't get carried away. You can have too much of a good thing. Since grace is Jesus, that's like saying you can have too much of Jesus. That's not possible. While you may have too little of the Lord in your life, you cannot have too much. So, so, the hyper-grace movement is taking this disparaging phrase that's being put over them. These guys like Paul Ellis or, you know, Joseph Prince or a whole bunch of other ones that I have stacks of books on this right now. They're basically taking this disparaging statement, oh, you're, you're, you're just getting too excited about grace. And they're going, no, you can't be too excited about grace because it's the actually, the it's, we've waited... We've, humanity has waited its entire life for this grace. You can't overstate it. So if you want to call us hyper-grace people, go right ahead because it's in the Bible. But just, don't, give, just don't, don't lie about us and give the impression that now we're easy on sin because we're not easy on sin. Anybody that says that they can justify adultery, for example, or they can justify sin under the banner of grace has got a perverted view of grace because the role of grace is Christ Himself expanding Himself in us to make us like Christ. But I heard that yeah. They condone sin. And not, that's not true at all. 
And I need you to, to, to once you understand that we're not going to do that, that, that the parameters have been set around us, that we're not going to drift off into some appendage, what we're going to do is plunder the depth of grace because I don't think we can be like Jesus without it. In fact, I know we can't. That's what the Bible teaches. And I'm going to encourage you guys to start reading through the book of Romans and the book of Galatians with a new lens on and put your grace glasses on. Put your mercy glasses on. Read Joseph Prince's book, Reigning in Life, and you will find the most spectacular descriptions of the power of God ever. So what I'm entitling this little talk about is Christ plus nothing. You cannot and will not be a Christian without Christ. You were never intended to be a Christian without Christ. And Jesus Christ is grace. He is grace. He is mercy. So you don't need to be nervous. The more you commune with Jesus, the more you're going to be like who you commune with. And He is grace. Now grace is not just unmerited favor. When you listen to Graham Cook teach on this and others, it's not just unmerited favor because Jesus was full of grace. It's not just he was given favor, uh, you know, he, he didn't, he deserved it in a way. I mean, he, he hadn't sinned. Grace means all the goodness, all the power, all the capacities of God at your disposal. That's what grace is. So, Let's read this again out of Romans 5.17. It says, Romans 5.17. It says, For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more, that's called hyper, how much more, Will those who receive God's great, abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I'd like you to consider memorizing that verse as well as Galatians 2.20, but Romans 5.17. Um, it is super potent. So it says in Colossians 1.17 and other places, um, Christ in you is your hope of glory. So, what's going on though is over the years the church has done like what the Jewish people did. The Jewish people were given ten commandments. But you know what they did? In their own religious spirit, their own attempt to strive and be like God, they invented 611 more commandments to add to that in the Talmud. There's 611 other commandments that they had to keep to be considered righteous before God. Is that crazy? What a way to live. Like, you know, you got to go over, you got to go over two or three commandments a day every year just to, just to get them in your head. Like, this is what I ought and should do. And now you've got to pull that off with your soul power. And if you don't, you're not right with God or people. Go, go play that game and see what happens to your life. You're either going to fall into tremendous arrogance or tremendous condemnation. 
Now, here's what it says in Scripture. If sin abounded under the law, and Christ came to, uh, then grace will abound more and more to displace sin and make you like Jesus. So Christ comes along and says, I've got a new covenant, and it's a new covenant in my blood. It's a new covenant with me. And I will keep the covenant on your behalf. You can't keep the covenant. You couldn't keep the covenant in the Old Testament. What makes you think you're going to be able to keep the covenant in the New Testament? I'll keep the covenant for you. And then I'll put you in Christ and Christ in you. And now you are, because you're in Christ, there is no more condemnation. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. It's finished before God. And you live from a place of vict from victory to appropriating that grace. All you do is receive it. You do nothing to earn it. So, over the years, the church said, oh yeah, okay, so you're saved by grace. You know, we heard that from Martin Luther. We're a Reformed Protestant movement. We're not Catholics. We're not Mormons. We don't think you have to earn this through penance and all that. So we broke off from this religious group and we're saved by grace. But what's happened? Over all these years, we've accumulated more oughts and shoulds and we give people the impression that if they do the right things, then they'll be sanctified and they'll be rewarded in heaven. See, we've told people that your life is being uh, captured on a movie screen. And you're going to stand at the judgment seat and all the negative things that you've ever done are going to be shown in front of everybody at that judgment seat. And boy, God is mad with you and people are going to be disappointed. It's going to be humiliating and embarrassing because you're going to go to the judgment seat and we're going to watch every nasty thing you did. Everything you did in secret is going to come out in the light. And, and, and sh doesn't that motivate you to, to, do, to do good? You would think it would. It never does. The fear of being exposed never stopped anyone from, from sinning. You know why? Because you can't. Only Christ in you can expand himself to the degree that you can, be, that you can walk in freedom. And by the way, that's all a big, big fat lie. That's not what takes place. In fact, it says you can approach the throne of grace freely because your sins have been covered and forgiven. And at the judgment seat, you don't need to fear, believer, because perfect love casts out fear and you're not going to hear a litany of all your sins and, and mistakes. It's been covered by the blood of Jesus. As far as the east is from the west, so have your sins been removed from you. And God looks at, at you through the lens of Christ. Now that's good news. So, in the Old Testament, here's my question. What were the requirements to be right with God? In the Old Testament. Keep the law. Was that the sacri sacrificing of animals? Yeah, keep the law or be good. You know, do the Ten Commandments. Alright, so... What are the requirements to be right with God in the New Testament? Believe on Jesus. Believe on Christ. Confess with your mouth. <clears throat> Confess with your mouth. Believe with your heart. 
receive the grace of God. So your work is to believe. That's what Jesus said. Anything else that you... Any, do we need to add anything else to that? Like, are you sure? You shouldn't... You know, isn't there another list for, from evangelical fundamentalists that you should do? What has the church told you, though, you need to do? What has the Christian religion told you you need to add to that equation? Read your Bible, pray a lot. Read your Bible, pray a lot. Tithe. Worship. Tithe. Worship, repent. You got to repent a lot. Put your sins under the blood of Jesus. Put your sins under. You, you got. See it at the judgment. Right. Seat. Don't you need to feel bad? You should feel really creepy because the, the role of the Holy Spirit isn't the role of the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin. Actually, it says it's to convict the world of sin, not the Christian. The role of the Holy Spirit is to remind you of the finished work of Jesus. What else are you supposed to do, according to the church, the Christian religion? Bring more people into church. What? Bring more? Yeah, you got to get with it and bring people to church. Attend all meetings. you got to share the gospel whether you like it or not. Attend all the meetings. Janet loves meetings. Yeah, clothe the naked, heal the sick. Raise the dead. Raise the dead. You got to, you, you, you ought to do, you ought to should to do this, right? You're supposed to do this. When was the last time you healed the sick and cast out a demon? You should feel terrible about yourselves. You bad, bad Christians. Bad. You see what I'm saying? This law that, that snuck back into the equation. What is that? What, is, what happens when you think that there's a law out there that you're not doing? Does that make you want to run to the Lord? Does it make you feel shameful and guilty? All right, now, do you feel like you have a debt that you still owe God? Like you, you, you owe Him because after all, didn't He die your death? So don't you owe Him something? Do you feel like you owe Him something? Well, at one point, did you ever? At one point, did you ever think you kind of owed God something? Yeah. Okay, now. Imagine that you owe somebody, let's say that you, you owe somebody $50,000. Is that a lot of money? Is that enough or you want to make it higher? And, and let's say that you, said, you went to them and said, you know, that you cut a deal with them and said, okay, now I'm going to pay you this fifty grand in, in a year because I'm going I'm to come across some money. I just need a short-term loan to carry me over, but in a year I'll pay you back fifty grand." Now, let's say at the end of the year, you didn't pay him a, a single dime. Now, are you going to want to run into this person? Are you going to want to see this person at all? Right? Are you? I mean, if you know you, they, you feel terrible, right? And they, do you think they're going to like you if, if you told them you're going to pay them back 50 grand and they needed that money and you haven't paid them back? What is going to be your emotional disposition toward that person? Avoidance. Avoidance. It's embarrassing, right? Like you didn't fulfill your end of the deal. You got this loan. You're supposed to pay it back. You didn't pay it back. You're awkward. They're awkward. Awkward. It's terrible, right? You're going to avoid them. You're not going to want to be around them. All right, now, let's imagine that you've got this, this friend who's a multi, multi, multi-billionaire. 
And this friend discovers that you weren't capable of paying back that 50,000 bucks. And they, they didn't want you to be embarrassed or, you know, feel awkward about it. So they, they found out, okay, it's the, the debt is 50000 And they go, man, that, that must have been awkward. So here's what I'm going to do. Rather than just pay that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay back the bill on, their, on my friend's behalf. But instead of just paying 50000 they write a check for $1 million. And they write that check and they hand the money. They, they sent a courier and they said, this $1 million will cover my friend's $50,000 debt and then some. Release them from this debt completely. And the friend gets that million dollars, or the person that made the loan gets a million dollars and goes, wow, this is, was a great deal. I didn't even get in. I, you know, I got way more than interest on 50 grand. I got a million bucks for 50,000. That's like crazy good. Now, but what, now everything though rides on whether you find out how you hear the information about this. What if a courier comes and says, he says, go and tell, go and tell my friend that their debt's been forgiven. And the courier gets the message off a little bit. And he says, hey, look, I, I think possibly the debt's been eradicated, but I'm not so sure about that exactly. So you might want to keep making some payments. What if that was the message that came from the billionaire's courier? What would happen in, emotionally to you? Would you still avoid that person? Because you wouldn't be sure, right? You're just a little, you're not confident. So you'd still avoid them. You wouldn't feel like you were right with them. And you'd still be making payments, right? Because the message wasn't clear. But what if the person that paid the debt goes, hey, did you, did you find out that I gave this, this person that you owed the money to a million dollars? You're way more than freed up. You're way more than cleared. On your behalf, it's all done. That person got a, a million dollars out of the deal. And you're going, really? Yeah, that means it's all done ten, times a bunch. What would you do? If I, if I was me... And that person that lent me the money, 50000 I'd knock on their door and say, hey, how's it going? Wow, it's great. The best thing I ever did was to make a, you know, deal, cut a deal with you. i say, yeah, why don't you take me to breakfast just you know, for the heck of it? Since you know, because of me, you got a you know, million dollars. I'd say, hey, man, you know, I wouldn't do that. But I, well, no, I probably would. I'd say, <laughs> I'd say you owe me a million. You, know, you owe me at least a breakfast. breakfast. No, yeah, you, you owe me at least. Lobster steak. Yeah, 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 you owe me a surf and turf dinner, man. Um, no, I'd be like, come on. If you gave me a million, I could pay them. <laughs> oh, sounds good there, Lana. But you're, 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 getting, you're getting the point. How we hear the information makes all the difference in the world. If you don't hear of that grace message properly, you're still going to think something's unfinished. There's a debt out there. And you're going to be ambiguous as to how you stand with God. Now that is where the church is right now. They don't understand that this whole thing has been paid past, present, and future in the blood of Jesus at the cross. They don't realize that they have straight access to the throne of grace. That the supernatural capacities that are in God are for them. 
tracking with me? All right, so um, what exactly is religion? What exactly is religion? A set of rules that get us to God. Anything else? Everything on the other side of the plus. Yeah, anything we add to Jesus, anything, it's Jesus plus something else in our own mind, anything else is religion, correct? All right, what is the evidence or the indicator that you have been seduced into, into religion? At an emotional level, at a relational level, what, what might be an indication that you still have religious residue inside of you? You say should and ought. Should and ought. What do you think over there? Feeling like shame. You're, you know, kind of shame. I didn't follow the rule. Shameful. Yeah, I feel guilty. Yep. Anything else? Sense of inadequacy. Sense of inadequacy. Perfect. Fear of rejection. Anybody ever felt a fear of rejection? Performance. Get your act together, sister. All right, let me ask you something. Does offense reveal religion? Yes. Mm-hmm. If you're offended mm-hmm. with anybody, are you operating from heaven to earth or from earth to heaven? Earth to heaven. So offense is an indication that you're still operating in, in a condition-based culture, right? Internally. How about a judgment? If you judge somebody. Yeah? Is that religion? What if you're critical? What if you're critical of somebody? Is that, is that religion? What if you make a decision, I'm going to open or close my heart based upon someone else's performance or attitude? Is that religion? Has anybody ever done that in this room? Guilty. Do you understand that... Okay, let me just get this out here very clearly. Listen carefully. How you view God... How you view God... And how you view yourself in light of how God views you determines everything. If you don't view God as this merciful, kind, and gracious being, and you don't know how God views you as a son of God, totally forgiven, daughter of God, completely free, if you don't know God accurately, and if you don't know yourself accurately, then that will shape your attitudes and your actions. What you believe determines what you think and do. Is that true? So how many of you think that you believe in, in really that God is merciful and gracious? You really know what He's like, and in light of that, you really know what you're like. I'm getting there. You're getting there. See, all problems in life boil down to 
how we view God and how we view ourselves. Are you, are you grabbing that? Because that affects how you treat people and relate to them. So God has asked this house to be a house of mercy and grace. And if someone is carrying any kind of a religious disposition, that makes them highly toxic and dangerous in this house. Are you tracking with me? Like, like the last person you want to have leading or influencing this house is somebody that's got an attitude that's critical or judgmental. Why? Because the minute they send a look of disgust or frustration or close their heart, they are undermining the gospel. They are misrepresenting what God's like and will build a house of Pharisees. Now the fact of the matter is, all of us need to get purged from some measure of religion, including me, and Mono, and Lori, and Janet. We're waiting for Janet to get her, the gospel in her life. It's Janet's fault. I, oh, I love saying that. No, I don't. I'm just kidding. Now, do you, under, do you understand? That was recorded. Uh, because everyone knows I'm kidding and I'm the problem. Here, here's where this is significant. To be a daughter or a son in God's house means you need to be a child of mercy and grace. To be a child in God's house. To be a son of God means you need to know who your daddy really is and to know who you are in light of that. The front door into the kingdom is the revelation of God as gracious, as a good father who doesn't judge you, who's taken all his judgment out on Christ. The front door in the kingdom is through sonship, but a son of grace and mercy, a daughter of grace and mercy. Therefore, the front door of this work has to be paralleling what heaven and what the kingdom is like. The front door of this house has to be sonship and a son or a daughter that evidences and emits that they're operating in the revelation of mercy and grace. If that's missing, if that's missing at any level, it's going to bring an arsenic-like toxin into the culture of this house. Are you tracking with me? And a, little, and, a, and a little arsenic over time will kill you. Any mixture of any kind will kill you and will kill us. And most churches, and I think to some degree ours still, is a place that doesn't feel safe. Because we know intuitively by watching your attitudes and actions that if something should come up, disgust is going to hit your heart. You are going to close your heart. The fact that you can't even open your heart in the first place is a sign that we're still religious. The fear that's in a person that says, I can't disclose, I can't open up, I must wear a mask, I've got to be cautious, I've got to self-protect, that is a religious spirit in you and that is a religious spirit in us. And God wants to endorse this house with the fullness of His presence, but will not endorse a pharisaical spirit or a spirit of religion, where it's Jesus plus something else. Now listen, people, the safest place on earth should be 
of the body of Christ. Because when we understand mercy and grace, we never relate to somebody around their false self and their weaknesses and their sin. And if we never do that. It's like, so what? Join the human race. Big whoop. You know, is that all you got? He says, oh no, it's really bad. Oh, it's really bad. No, I lust. I hit porn. I have adultery. I steal. I lie. I even killed somebody. And somebody goes, ooh, you mean you just invented that sin? You didn't, you didn't, I mean, there's no sin you can invent. Like if somebody's shocked and appalled at a confession, that's a sign of a religious spirit. Are you tracking with me? Like, what's such a big whoop about that? Is that all you got? So, I know that the degree of the endorsement of God's wine and presence that's going to hit this house is directly related to how well we understand and apply the gospel of grace. And when the Lord showed me that by revelation, I went, man, I've got to get on in this. And I, I mean, I didn't start striving. I didn't start, oh my gosh, it's, you know, it's, it's terrible. Now I've got to start making grace a work. But in the joy of this, I went, I've had a blind spot. I've assumed more than I should. And when I go to interviewing you guys individually, I hear a ton of religion. And I think some of it's still in me too. So, you know, you don't have to worry. I'm not sitting there going, why? what's your people's problem? I don't believe that we fully understand the depth of what was done for us on the cross the mercy and grace of God, and how free we are to be ourselves in a safe place. The evidence that we have this gospel of mercy and grace will be revealed by how well we open our hearts to one another and transmit the affection of Jesus. Now, I don't blame anybody for taking time. Most people take years to, to, for them to discern and trust whether a group's safe enough to do that. So, but I, I, I'm, I'm going on record saying we will fight and contend for the eradication of a religious spirit manifested in guilt and shame on one hand and condemnation or self-righteous judgments and arrogance and criticism on the other. Let me go on record saying, in my opinion, the greatest mistake I've ever made in leadership, and this is very painful, to talk about. The greatest mistake I've ever made in leadership was to have gotten a revelation that the church is to be a family of heart-connected people and not double down on the gospel of grace. We got people in close proximity to love each other with mixture. And so the minute somebody you know, it was exposed, we've, there was a justification to condemn them. And or there was an elite spirit that crept in. Aren't we awesome? Because we're now a family. And that, that elite spirit exposed a religious spirit. And I didn't see it clear enough as a leader back in Kansas City. And that very spirit backfired onto me. And I want to tell you from a from just a from just being a holy kind of person, Jan and I we have a fairly high level of holiness in our life. I mean, you know what I'm saying? But that wouldn't matter because if the spirit of a Pharisee or self-righteousness is in the group, 
you can find one wrong thing and use it to disqualify somebody. So that spirit of religion backfired on me and Janet. We came under criticism and condemnation from our own family and got tossed out of our own family in a very clever way. Got tossed out of our own the family we started with affection and love, where people bought into city reaching and the kingdom. We and Mono and Lori got tossed out of our, the family that we helped form because of that spirit of elder brother Pharisee religious spirit that I helped open the door to. There's an angel saying, yeah. <laughs> and so, now, here's the good part. How does God get us to repent on, the new t on this side of the cross in the New Testament? How does God get us to change our mind? That's the word repent. How does He do it? Kindness. His kindness. His mercy leads us to repentance. You see, in the Old Testament, it wasn't kindness. It was, you're going to pay for this, sister. You're going to pay for this, brother. Because of your sin now, I'm going to bring judgment on that city. So when I hear people saying in the New Testament, wow, God really judged New Orleans. God really judged San Francisco. God really judged New York. I said, like, well, why didn't, if, if, if God's way of getting you to fix yourself is to you know, blow you up or have a terrorist or have a, a hurricane, why hasn't he done it to you? What makes you any better than New Orleans or San Francisco? So you're not gay. So you don't do this. So you don't do that. What makes you any different than that city. In other words, God is not judging the earth anymore, people beloved. He's already judged the earth in Jesus. All the wrath and judgment that was stored up for the human race landed on Christ. It's already been done. He's not, he's not walking the planet trying to zap you. He's, he's not angry anymore. I don't know, man, in the Jesus movement, everything was about fear. You know, the rapture was about fear. You're going to be snatched up. And, and there was a bumper sticker that says, Jesus is coming back and he's pissed. That was the bumper sticker. And Jesus said, I'm not here to judge the world. The judgment's going to come on me. I'm here to liberate the world from the effects of the first, from the first Adam and Eve. And I'm not here to judge you anymore. That's been done. I don't relate to you through your sin. I don't, I'm not bringing up your false self. And so if I'm not doing that with you, stop doing that with other people. Stop becoming an expert on the splinter in their eye when you've got a log in your own. Like, what makes you like this? It's religion. Racism is a religious spirit. Judging someone and putting them down in order to elevate you. So what God's trying to do is purge the rock tribe from a residue of a religious spirit that I, without knowing it, opened the door to. And, and God says, well, Tim, the only way you're going to get to see how bad this is, is if I allow some of it to hit your life and cause this devastation to hit you, and you're going to get a piece of your own medicine, and now you're going to double down, now you'll, now you'll go back with full and you won't judge the people that judged you you will be merciful for the people that threw you out and you will love them no matter what because you can't respond to judgment with a judgment and have me win 
So the sign that you're still angry and hurt, if you are, means you haven't got it yet. You can't judge a judger because you're still moving from a religious courtroom place and not the throne room. And I was like, wow, but I've got a lot of people I'm ticked at that hurt me very deeply in the church because I'm, I'm a pretty much, I don't mind unrighteousness. I really get troubled with self-righteousness. I, I just can't stand that thing. And God goes, well, what you can't stand in them is because there's a little bit still in you. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's not fun to hear. You know what I mean? I mean, if somebody comes and says, I'm a hooker, I'm a drug addict, I'm, you know, I've got sexual sins out the I'm a perverted person, I take drugs and alcohol and I steal every chance I get, I have tremendous mercy for those people. Tremendous mercy for the unrighteousness in people. It's like, I get that. I get why people compensate for a lack of love and do stupid things like that. But man, that Pharisee spirit just gets my goat. I can't stand it. And the Lord goes, yeah, but guess what? The reason why you can't stand it in them is because there's a little bit in you. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is not good. So the Lord goes, I really am going to bless this family of churches. I'm going to bless you so beyond. You're going to move in signs and wonders and power and grace. But you are going to have to make this all about Jesus. And you're going to have to tell people that I'm full of grace and truth. That's what I am all the time. Every day, all day, and this people's got to be like me. And you got to be the safest and get to be the safest people on earth. And I'm like, wow. He goes, so Tim, your assignment from now on is to, is to absolutely bombard this family with hyper grace. Now, I don't necessarily like that term. But grace and mercy and truth and the, and the, and the person of Jesus. Basically, Jesus. Because everything is Jesus plus nothing. And we are going to have a God without religion. And we're going to be the nicest, safest, kindest, funnest, freest, happiest, most joyful, most gracious, most kind, most long-suffering, most... most uh, extraordinarily happy, party, celebrative people that you've ever met because we're going to see who God really is and we're going to know who we really are in light of who really He really is and then we're going to evidence that to everybody we're around. Do you know how fun it is to go up to somebody and tell them and to tell them, look, you're the righteousness of Christ. Christ died your death while you were still a sinner. Like you're right before God. That God loves you and you're right in, you're, you are right with God right now. Do you know how fun that is to go tell somebody, look, I'm, a, I'm an agent, I'm an ambassador of the ministry of reconciliation. And on behalf of heaven, God's not mad at you. God really likes you. God really loves you. You're in. You can't do anything more to get in. Well, what do I do? You receive this paid debt. You receive the gift that's been given to you. You don't have to go around and beat people up first before you, you know, the, give them the bad news before you give them the good news. Give them the good news right up. Right up front. First of all, I am good news. You are good news. Here it is. I'm going to love you no matter whether you're a Pharisee, self-righteous, religious-driven person, or whether you're a card-carrying pagan devil worshiper. You don't scare me. Pharisees, religious people, 
shouldn't scare us. And devil worshipers shouldn't scare us. You know why? Because we're so infiltrated with light and with love, whatever we touch becomes like us. See, in the Old Testament, if you touched a leper, you got leprosy and you're unclean. In the New Testament, you touch a leper, they get healed. How cool is that? So, we've got to stop dressing up in this religious garbage and know that we're the righteousness of Christ and we're the glory of God and we're the radiance of Jesus and we've been taken back to the first Adam before the fall and you are a son and a daughter of God and Christ is inside of you and you're in Christ and wherever you go, every time you look at somebody, every time you touch them, every time you speak to them, heaven comes to earth. You are good news. But if there's still a little residue of bad news in you, you're going to hesitate. You're going to drive with the brakes on. You're going to be nervous. Like, who am I? I got nothing to say. Wait a minute. Stop that. You are the righteousness of Christ. And it's time that this lie dissolves straight out of you. No more condemnation. No more guilt. No more performance. No more hamburger helper. A son in this house, a daughter in this house, knows the gospel and they are the gospel. Now, can you sign up for that? Yes, daughter of the Most High God. Well, so I shared, I think, recently that um, I've been listening to the men's, uh, the men's boot uh, camp because I had to, not because I wanted to. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> but I got really blessed by it. And, and what happened was um, this, this thing about grace. I mean, I went to Karis Bible College, which is Grace Bible College, right? And then I was the director of a Bible college. So this is, like, is not a new message for me. And I've been a Christian for 41 years. So um, I've heard all these verses before, but... It was by revelation, something new. Mm -hmm. I began to really, like, I got rocked by listening to that men's boot camp. And, um, <clears throat> and I guess the only thing I want to say is that as I began to understand that I was, that I was really forgiven and that I was um, the righteousness of God and that I was accepted in the beloved and that I was the beloved, that... It, it set me free in all of my relationships, but it started with me understanding who I was Yes. first. Yes. And then once I did, and I'm not there yet, I'm just still at the beginning of really understanding that, but it, it made my relationships with everyone else like almost immediately different, like because now I looked at them from, through this grace that I'd been given. Mm. So it started with me and my and understanding me, and it came by revelation. It wasn't like, like I it, like you read those words and they can mean nothing for to you, or you read them and then the revelation of God hits you and you and you're all of a sudden like, whoa, I, whoa, whoa, I can't believe that I've just read those words my whole life and never really understood them. Mm -hmm. That that is profound. 
because the gospel can't be can't be received through the intellect. And a lot of evangelicals think that if I just understand the content of replacement, you know, I'm not, you know, identify with Christ, I've been died with, if they hear the information, they think they've got freedom. They don't have freedom. You can't access the unseen realm through the, the vehicle of your soul, your mind. You can only get there through the revelation of the heart. And um, that's why we need to be the gospel with skin on, because skin, that's a grace-based culture of people, we got good news each other with our eye contact, with our touch, with the way we relate. We reinforce the gospel at a horizontal level. And God is looking to combine this gospel this way with this gospel this way to where we're the safest place on earth. And I think that's what started happening, Sue, is not only did the revelation hit your spirit vertically, but we started, you started feeling the unconditional love horizontally. Yeah. But even that, I allowed that to happen. I wasn't allowing that to happen on some uh, level. And God was saying, no. Mm -hmm. Like he, he um, rebuked me and said, why are you not allowing this stuff to hit your heart that people are doing or saying yeah. to you? So, yes. See, so you had to receive. Yeah, I had to receive it. And that's scary, isn't it? Because what if it's wrong? You see, what if we're lying? What if we've said, oh, no, Sue, you know, we're the safest place on earth and all of a sudden we're not. Like you come up with some information that, oh, my gosh, you know, you're this felon that, that's murdered people. And now we find that out. And now you're out of here. You see what I mean? So that, that's where God's going to shake the fear. Perfect love casts out fear. And when there's perfect love, you don't have anything to fear. Because no matter what information we end up finding out, it, it doesn't disgust us. It actually causes us to be more in love and more caring. Not that we, you know, negative information should never, should never turn off one's heart if you understand grace. Now, here's what hell does. Hell wants to get you to live a courtroom life. Hell is a professional courtroom. Satan means, or let's say this, the word devil Diabolos means slanderer. It means accuser. That's what Diabolos means, the devil. It means slander, accuser. You've heard me talk about this. Lucifer means a counterfeit light. All right, so basically what the devil does is he tries to seduce us into the courtroom where he can accuse and slander you and get you to accuse and slander others. And basically what you'll do is you'll isolate on that sin in yourself or others and then amplify it and use it to disqualify and reject someone else. Now that's what Absalom did with David. He identified a legitimate weakness in David. He isolated it. He amplified it. And he used it to justify the dividing of the kingdom. So an offense turns to a judgment and a judgment turns to a, to a courtroom case a judge means, no, the word judge is, is what we do with courts. And then out of the judgment comes a verdict of guilty. A verdict of guilty says you go to prison now. You go to, you know, I must now send you away from me. What is it when we send people away? What is that? Exile. We exile you. 
We put you in prison. And I've just read a recent article of a, of a guy that planted church, really successful pastor. But he hit burnout and he had to resign from his own church. And churches are notorious for booting their pastors, kicking their pastors, hurting their pastors. And because there's been a religiously based culture. And so the, the, the most unsafe people on earth are pastors. Because people set them up to be idols. And they're these perfect people that, you know, that if there's a mistake or a problem. And so if a pastor finds out he's burning out because he's been performing, then he can't go and take a sabbatical. He can't be paid to go rest because he's not performing. He can't validate his existence. And if they would have called me and said, hey, Tim, help us work this thing through, I would have gone to the church and said, this guy needs a break. Give him two years paid, free, paid vacation to go and soak in Jesus and go to a, a sabbatical and get filled up and healed up and get some inner healing. And get this power, pastor, you know, grace, bless this guy, love this guy, bless him. Don't, don't throw him out the pasture because he's not performing anymore. You see, the church has been the nastiest, most unsafe place on earth. If somebody's got a problem, we expose it and then boot them. And that, that's not going to happen in this place. And so we're saturated, surrounded by accountable people, and I'm not going to perform for anybody. I'm going to live freely receiving and freely giving. And I want to model health and wholeness. And if I'm starting to get a little exhausted, and I'll just, I'm, just, I'm out of here for, I'm not going to quit and resign. I'm just going to go take time off and go find, Je you know, go enjoy Jesus. Because nobody's paying me to love them or serve them. See, that's a culture of performance. But that, that pastor burned out and he, he had no other option, but I got to re resign. Terrible. We do terrible things to leaders. If they come and they open up and they say, hey, I'm having a problem with my sexuality or I'm having a problem with this. And well, then you're out, you know, you're out of here. It's like, no, we need to double down on our loving and go, listen, man, you're just, a, you're just dealing drugs with yourself. <laughs> Let's get you freed up and healthy. You're fine. You're safe. It's okay. It's no big deal. Everybody struggles with this. You're it's okay. We've got to make this the safest place on earth. So the courtroom is the dangerous, most dangerous place on earth because in the end, everyone's going to lose, right? I don't care how righteous you are. You know, Mono and Lori had a pretty, pretty put together and so did Tim and Janet. But still, you will find something in me. You look hard enough that would, you know, disqualify me from something. Because if you're going to operate from the courtroom, everyone's going to be guilty. Thank God, God held court. And he held court and Jesus Christ became the focal point of that court proceeding and he took all the wrath and the judicial penalty on himself on our behalf. So no more court. The minute the devil shows up to hold court on you, you tell him, listen, my answer to you is the finished work of Jesus. The blood of the, the lamb was shed on my behalf. And that might be true information about my false self, but it's not a conclusion about me. I am a daughter of the Most High God. I'm a son of the Most High God. I am, a, I am you know, in Christ and Christ is in me. Go to hell. And furthermore, when he starts whispering about other people and, and showing you the other people's weaknesses and getting you to close your heart to them, what do you do? Somebody tell me. What do you do when hell shows up and starts holding court in your own mind on someone else? What do you do? 
No, yeah. I, on the tape. Say it, Deborah. Tell him to go to hell. <laughs> yes. Sweet little Deborah. That was so cute. That has more power coming out of your mouth. People expect it from me, but not from you. Yeah, what, what happened? I mean, seriously, how do you stop this obsessive, compulsive, conversation that's going on in your brain when you know you're analytical and critical and this thing is going on how do you shut that sucker down because it's dangerous it's not cute yes i just have to say that when that happens with me i recognize there's a problem inside of me that god wants to deal with and so to turn it around and begin to ask the lord what that is that refocuses me to the right place and then I get healing, and then I don't feel that way about the other person. Yeah. <laughs> uh, see, yeah, this is a huge question. One of the other things that Jess and I have been talking about at home, and I, we mentioned it last week too, it's the idea that when we are starting to feel the, the, um, the tendency or the, the movement towards like getting frustrated, judging people, or, or looking at them because of how they're behaving, to, I mean, I'm literally having to stop and like picture the person and standing like they had their arms out and there's there's signs with their behavior written on them like hanging on their arms or around their neck or something and i've literally got to like take the behavior off of them and put it aside and say i want to relate to the person and not their behavior on, and it's it's totally revolutionizing how i look at relating to my family relating to friends relating yeah. to coworkers, you know bosses and even like institutions, like I, when I, if I have a, a thought about how an institution operates, how a specific church, you know, handles their, the way they deal with people or whatever, oh, well, you know, I don't know that that's right. My, my analysis would say this is not the best way to do it. I have to stop and say that is not for me to decide, and I'm going to take that off and relate differently, even in how I think about an institution or something like that, Perfect. because it's, it's not helpful to, to continue to relate based on what I think is positive or yeah. negative. So. See, and what's the paradox of this? See, we think that if I expose the bad behavior and the bad attitudes, and if I point it out, and if I, if I get really professionally you know, excellent about describing their negativity, that that's going to help the situation. See what I mean? Don't, don't you think? I mean, secretly, we think... That if I just come up with and I just diagnose the bad stuff really well, that's going to fix it. Does that, does that work? Does it ever work? Here's the paradox. This is what's so crazy. That may seem logical, but it's not biblical. It's not kingdom. The way something works in the kingdom is when I tell you who you really are, and rather than point out your weakness and bad, badness, I point out who you are in Christ. I have a ministry of righteousness, and I tell you, look at Jesus Christ, because you become what you fixate on. If you fixate on a weakness, it's actually going to get worse. See, if I just bombard you, David, if I just find out your weakness, and I, all of, and, and I, just, I just keep talking about it and talking about it and talking about it, you know, guess what's going to happen? You're just going to, it's just going to grind you down, and you're going to be, you're going to end up doing it more. You can't help yourself, or you're going to react against it, and then you're going to be some up, uptight dude. It's not going to work. But if I keep pointing you to Jesus, get your mind off yourself, David, and off your weakness, you're going to become like what you look at. 
That's good pastoral practice. But it's rarely done in the church. But we're, we're going to change that by the grace of God. Yes? So, and the one other thing is to recognize that, the, that whatever you're seeing that might be negative in that person is really the strategy of the enemy to, mm-hmm. to steal their destiny from them. Mm-hmm. And then you come through intercession against that. So you don't see it as them, but as what the enemy's doing in their life. And certainly they've made choices. Woo to bring some power to that, but really, ultimately, it's the enemy in their life. Oh, that's brilliant. Hold that, will you? I had a situation yesterday, and I didn't get to to talk to these people, but we, um, the three women in our MKF had a DNA yesterday together at a coffee shop. And I came into the coffee shop, I got there early, and there's a wall there between us and some other people in another room, but there's no connection to the ceiling, so you Mm -hmm. can't see them, but you can hear them. And I think there was at least three people over there that were vehemently and vitriolically discussing Trump and all kinds of stuff. And there was hate and, and I mean, all kinds of stuff coming out of their mouths. And this is loud over the side. And we're getting ready to have a DNA. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're listening. And I know my old self would have really been kind of get critical, get, you know, kind of the rolling eye and frustration. But I sat there and I listened to the Lord. And it's like the Lord started having me start to intercede for them. Just start to pray and bless and listen and go to the courtroom and just come against all the accusations they were bringing and bring the blood over them. Any accusations against them and bring the blood over it. Begin to. I started releasing blessing toward them. Started, you know, loving on them the way I could through the wall. I, I didn't have. I didn't know what to do. I didn't feel called to go around the wall to talk to them, but to just keep and just keep listening. And the more I listened, the more God would give me to to, to release and to bless and to love. And I could hear the conversation start to die down. Then it would pick back up again. And I'd hear, I could hear a, a woman who was just very angry at men. So God would start tuning me in, start to pray against that spirit and release blessing toward her and that. By the time these guys got there, we never really heard any of that. It was peaceful. It was calm. They were still in there. Wow. And our DNA was the best. It was like the best connection time we'd wow. had. Awesome. So, And I just kept asking God, multiply angels, minister to them with angels. Let the angels be in just the thought of just not getting let that come on me, I thought I'm sending Jesus to them the way I know how. I don't know how to go around there and talk to them, but I can do this through intercession. That's awesome. And we just had the best time. Like that did not get away from us. Right. It didn't ruin our time. Nothing got in to take anything away. And I'm believing that something got imparted over them that might bring peace in their future too. See, yeah, when you retaliate anger with anger and judgment with judgment, now you're in the courtroom with hell works. But what you said was we got at a higher elevation. We went to the throne room and we began attracting grace. So that's what I'm trying to say is grace is actually an energy. It's the substance of Jesus that lubricates and, and changes the atmosphere and produces the supernatural change that we're after. You never change somebody by bringing them into the courtroom and cursing them and judging them. You only change somebody by taking them to the throne room and blessing them and praying for them. So you turn your revelation into intercession, not criticism. The minute you turn your insight into criticism, you're attracting demonic energy and it will actually make them worse. So you have been put in a place as a missionary to be an agent and an ambassador for grace, not for judgment. So if you do see something that's an issue, you basically say that is the redemptive 
storyline of God for this place, this company, this person, and you become an agent of grace and you unleash the presence of Jesus who will supernaturally alter the atmosphere inside of them. You see how this is important? And the worst mistake I ever made was to put people in leadership that did not have this revelation of grace and mercy. And so they used their position to be an agent of condemnation and rejection and courtroom, and it actually split a family under that demonic influence. And it isolated people because an offense will turn to a judgment, a judgment will turn to a division, a division will cause love to grow cold. So the people that come into influence in this house must, absolutely must, be grace-based, mercy-based people. Do you understand that? That is what it means to be a son in this house, and a father in this house, and a mother in this house. And I guarantee you, you wouldn't be here if that wasn't God's agenda for you. And secretly, deep down, you know this is the way to live because this is where the supernatural takes place. The supernatural takes place in the throne room of mercy and grace, not in the courtroom of judgment. And I'm telling you, I've been a pro, I've, you know, I've failed at this myself. And now God has really given us an upgrade. And all of the APES team is on this journey. You should hear the, the dynamic conversations we're having in prayer right now. It's like it's ferreting out residual religion that's, that's crept up into our lives. Ron, did you want to add to something on this? Okay. All right. So I, I, this is not just a cute new theme that, you know, we're jumping on to. This is not a fad. This, was, this gospel of grace is what revolutionized the world. Because when Paul began to teach on grace, he attracted the grace of Christ. He attracted Christ. And when the Galatians, they bought into this gospel of grace, but then they were seduced out of it. So Paul comes along and says, listen, Galatians, who bewitched you? Who seduced you back into religious performance? You are now finding yourself powerless because you've bought into religion again. Repent. Come back to the gospel of grace. So, could I encourage you guys, this is not a law, okay? This is not a demand or anything like that. Could I encourage you to read Galatians, especially the first eight chapters of Galatians. The first eight chapters of, of, of Romans, I'm sorry. I, wrong book, sorry everyone. The first eight chapters, yeah, that was a test. Very good Bible students. The first eight chapters of the book of Romans, I'd like to encourage you to read. I'd like you to encourage you to read all of Galatians. It's only a few chapters. It's not that long. No, it's not eight chapters. And just read those two, Romans and Galatians, and listen for the gospel of grace to come through. Then I'd like to encourage you to start on that book, Reigning in Life, by Joseph Prince. And the, the, the revelation of his writing will hit you. Now, I'm not elevating Joseph Prince above others. I mean, good news. I mean, gospel teaching has been going on with a lot of people. But I'm telling you, this right here will open the door to the supernatural. Now, who lives inside of you? 
Does he really live inside of you? Yes. So if Christ lives in you, is grace in you? Yes. If Christ is in you, do you have the capacity to heal the sick right now? Do you have to get better and get your act together in order to heal somebody? No, because no, Christ is in you, right? So the devil wants to say, no, you can't heal anybody because you're not good enough. You see, that's religion. If Christ is in you, can you cast a demon out of somebody? Just by your very presence, if you're operating in grace, does your presence change the atmosphere? Absolutely it does. Is a river of life flowing out of you right now? Yes. Are, is the good news of Jesus in you right now? And are you good news? Because you will emit mercy and grace. Are you interested in being in a family that has captured the revelation of mercy and grace and, and has become the safest place on earth? Are you interested in helping form that? Can you imagine what would happen if anyone was welcome to come into this place and be saturated in the mercy and grace of God without judgment? What would, be, what would this place be like if we really were this way? You know, I've, heard, I've heard prophecies where there's going to be whole regions of the earth where there's only light, no darkness. And I believe it's because of, this, of us getting this revelation and what you said and operating in that, that enemy's not going to be allowed to operate in whole regions. And that's like in my lifetime. That's I 100% agree with that. We're going to see whole cities come under the revelation of mercy and grace. That's why the demonic is resisting it so much right now. There's such a backlash and such a misrepresentation of this. There's such controversy about it because of how powerful it is. And, and I'm telling you guys, we're on to something from heaven that will be so radical. The more you receive grace the more you'll become like Christ and it will be automatic. It'll like stuff will dissolve. Like you'll be the nicest person on earth, the kindest person on earth, the most powerful person on earth. You know, how did that happen? Well, because Christ was allowed to expand in you. You didn't try to be better. You simply communed with Jesus and the next thing you know, you're more radiant. You're more full of light. And boy, this is really important for both men and women but especially women that are suffering tremendously uh, globally with poor self-esteem, deep, deep depression, deep weariness from being a mom. And God wants to bring the Eve-like capacities back to women. So I'm telling you, I, I taught on this at the women's meeting up in Laramie. And man, it was like the women had never heard this before. And it's already unleashing divine activity in their life because they're receiving what Jesus says about them that they're beautifully and wonderfully made apart from their outward appearance. It is so exciting what's going to happen with women and men. So can I just ask us to pray right now that, 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 we, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation hits us, that this gospel of grace penetrates our hearts, and then you're going to read by grace Galatians, first eight chapters of Romans, and then start plundering into the... I, do you guys remember that? I got a PDF file sent to you, right? So, you know, that's something worth looking at. So let's stand. And oh. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, in the mighty name of Jesus,
we ask for you to saturate this family with the gospel of grace, the person of Jesus, and that you would transform us to being the safest place on earth because you know what? We're Jesus' people. We're Jesus' body. We're Jesus' people. And we've, we get it. We're the kindest, nicest, gentlest, safest, pot, most positive, uncritical, unjudgmental, unified, affectionate people we've ever met. Because that's what you're like. So do a deep work in us today, Lord. Keep gospeling us. In Jesus' name, amen.